Hello, everyone. It's Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time, and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But... The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in the Bible. And as we look at it tonight, we pray that your spirit would open it up for us. We might see what's there, understand it, and be able to apply it to our lives. And in the power of your spirit, we'd be able to work out that application within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the first Sunday in November, if you were with us, as a church, we began looking at how the Bible points to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We began way back in Genesis 1 on the first page of the Bible. We saw God creating humans in his own image. And we saw that that looking even then to Christ being perfectly in the image of God one day to come. Then in Genesis 3, we saw saw failure on humanity's part and that mucking things up. And yet within that was a promise of one who would turn that around and we saw from the beginning that that was going to be Jesus. And we looked at Genesis 12 and then we began to speed up as we went through the Old Testament. And this Sunday, we come to the end of our series, the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, the end of the book of Revelation. And still, as we shall see, everything points us to the Lord Jesus. If you have a Bible, you might like to turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll be looking right through that chapter. It's on page 1891 of the Pew Bibles, or the other way to find it, it's the third last page. Now, as we come to Revelation chapter 21, it's helpful to have the context from the previous chapter, because we haven't been in the book of Revelation, from Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Because Revelation chapter 20 really sets the scene for chapter 21. And there are four things in Revelation chapter 20, that kind of are a background to what's going to happen in chapter 21. And firstly, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that the devil is under house arrest. As we live now, the devil was defeated when Jesus died on the cross. But as we live, he's kind of in house arrest. So if you stay outside his house, you're safe. If you go into his house, 
you're in trouble. The devil is under house arrest as we live now. Secondly, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is already reigning. So in our world now, might not look like it, but Jesus is already reigning. He's on the throne in heaven already. Thirdly, those who have died in Christ reign with him. And fourthly, now looking to the future, but it's our present future. It's the future for us, if you see what I mean. In the future, there is a judgment coming. A judgment, says to Revelation chapter 20, when the devil and indeed all evil will be completely wiped out. That's Revelation 20. That's the background. Uh, And according to Revelation chapter 20, the ones who will survive this judgment, those who, according to the book of Revelation, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And who are those? The book of Revelation has told us, even as far back as chapter 7, that it's those who've trusted Jesus' death to take away their sins, they alone are free through the coming judgment because actually their sins have been judged. Judged on the cross in Jesus. So they have nothing to fear from a coming judgment. That's Revelation chapter 20. As we live now in this world, the devil's under house arrest. Jesus and those who've died trusting him are reigning. Judgment is coming. That's our world. That's where we live. But then in Revelation chapter 21, John's vision shifts to the future. And suddenly God gives John a vision of a day which is yet to come. And the day comes. This is chapter 21 and verse 1. The day comes. And we read that John then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Notice that this is a vision, and it still has what I'll call symbolic language. So there are symbols being used. The best example is this of this is when John says that there was no sea. Now I hope that doesn't mean there's no sailing in heaven. Uh, uh, The sea, actually, in Jewish thought, was the place of evil. So, So a vision with no sea means that in this new heavens and new earth, there will be no place for evil. You see, the problem with this world is it does have a sea, isn't it? Evil is at the core of our world, and that needs to be removed There are people who believe that one day this world actually will evolve into a place without sea. That it will kind of, just people will improve and it will become a great place to live in that will sort out the problems. I even heard someone speak about this. About 10 years ago, I was driving along in the car listening to Radio National and they interviewed the social commentator Hugh Mackay, who's quite brilliant on many things. But it actually surprised me how optimistic he was about the world. He thought that younger Australians, by which he would mean a number of you, younger Australians were better equipped than any generation before them to sort out the world's problems and to make the world a better place. I wonder what he thinks 10 years later at the close of 2023. The biblical view is that the problems of this world will always be there while there's still a sea. That while there is a place for evil, then evil will keep appearing. What we need is a creation with no sea, no place for evil. And that will only be possible once there's been a judgment to remove the evil. And into this 
new creation, God puts a city. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So into this new creation, John sees a city coming down from God. Now, when I think of a city, I tend to think of Newcastle, or perhaps Sydney, or perhaps London, or New York. And I, in, when I think of a city, I, I tend to think of a map of the city. So if I think of, Lat of London, I tend to think of the maps of the underground that you see everywhere, of the London underground. It's sort of pre, sort of figure of London. You see it on tea towels and all sorts of places. But when John thinks of a city, he's not thinking of a place. He's thinking of a community of people. And this is an image that the book of Revelation has used several times because it has had much to say about the city of Babylon, not meaning the actual city of Babylon in Iraq, but a community of evil people. But now John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is not a physical city, but a community which is fitted for the new heavens and the new earth. So a little aside, you see, throughout the Bible, there are promises from God about the restoration of Jerusalem. But those promises are not about the restoration of a city in the Middle East. From God's perspective, the city of Jerusalem in the Middle East is no different from the city of Newcastle or London or New York. They're just cities. Since Jesus, the promises about Jerusalem refer to a community, not a place. A community, not a place. A community of God's people, a community not defined by geography, but by connection to God through Jesus. And John, in this vision, sees God putting this community of people into the new creation which he has made, which actually takes us back right to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 1. For if you remember there, God made a new creation. It's the one we have around us now. And into that creation, he put a community, men and women. And we mucked it up. So this time when God makes a new creation and he puts into it into a community, it's a community, the new Jerusalem, God's holy people. It's the community of those whose names are in the book of life. That is those who've trusted Jesus to deal with their sins and are evil taken away from them. Verse 2 again. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In my experience of life, one of the most joyous moments is always to see a bride come down the aisle of a church to her husband. And as a minister who, for some reason, people invite me to their wedding because I've got to stand up the front and do it, so to speak. As a minister, watch, I've watched this happen many, many times. And the vision of a bride coming down the aisle is something I don't believe I could ever tire of. It's a wonderful moment. And, and John sees this city, this community coming into the new heaven and earth in the same way. He sees the city as a bride coming to her husband. It's a beautiful and wonderful pic uh, picture. And this community, which 
goes into the new heaven and earth is a bride. But who, if it's a bride, who is the husband? Go down over the page if you're following to verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, this is an angel who's already spoken in Revelation. He comes and says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the book of Revelation, the Lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride adorned for her husband is the wife of of the Lamb, where Jesus is the Lamb. This is Jesus' bride. Why is it Jesus' bride? Because this is the community whom Jesus' work has made clean and perfect and made beautiful like a bride. Jesus has worked to prepare for this moment. And so the biblical image, even much earlier in the Bible, is of Jesus and this holy community as his bride. And then in verse 10 of chapter 21, the angel carries John away for a more detailed examination of the great city. And again, there are all sorts of images which in a sense you can't put together to make a concrete picture in any way, shape or form, because they're images that go in all sorts of places so that one stage we have a bride, but, but now the city has God's glory symbolised by a precious jewel. It also has a great high wall symbolising that it's totally secure. The gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel symbolising that this city, this heavenly Jerusalem is indeed the fulfilment of all the promises to Abraham back in the Old Testament. Uh, indeed, the actual nature of this city is even promised in the Old Testament. You can read about this city in Ezekiel chapter 42, verse 14 of Revelation 21. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Jesus of course, appointed 12 apostles. He sent them to preach the gospel to all the world. And in a sense, from them, the gospel preaching would go on throughout the world where people would hear about the Lord Jesus and accept what he had done for them and become members of this city. You can see how that gospel work is the foundation of this city. In verses 15 and following, the sitting is measured. It turns out to be a perfect cube. It's a perfect size. Now, this is not town planning, for this city is a community, but it's the perfect people of God. That's the image of the size. In verses 18 to 21, John sees that this city is covered with the most precious stones and jewels. Verse 19, let me just read you a couple the foundations of the city wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The idea is this is beauty beyond anything you could ever imagine. You can't buy this in Matthew's Jewelers or anywhere like that. This is, this is just 
stunning. No bride has ever had anything like that. And that is how this vision is of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, stunning beyond our wildest imagination. And the great mark of this new Jerusalem, of this new city, the great mark, back to verse 3, God is there. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You might recall in the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, God came and walked with the man and the woman. And in this new creation, we're told it will be like that again. God will be with his people. Flip down to verse 22 where we read more about this. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In Jewish thought, still to this day, there was only one place where you could meet with God in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why it's so precious to Jews. Now God's presence there was always symbolic. God was never actually in the temple. But it was still in the temple where you met with God. Before Jesus, you came up to Jerusalem from the rest of Israel and you went to the temple to meet with God. But now we have a new Jerusalem, but no temple. For God is not met in a building now. God is met in God. God is the temple. More than that, there is no sun or moon. This is all symbolic. Why? Because God's glory is the light to this city. Again, a parallel with Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God creates a sun and moon so that there might be light for the universe. Now in the new heaven and the new earth, they're unnecessary. God's presence has changed the way creation will operate. God is in this city. And there is then the most wonderful description of what life will be like in this city. Have a look at verse 4. We read of God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. As I thought about this during the week, I thought, I don't think I can even imagine what this would be like. How can there be a world where there be no crying? How could there be a world where there be no pain? Where no one could die? I, it, it doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't make sense to me. And yet, and yet, that is the promise from God of this new creation being so completely different from this one. That this will be the mark of it. All the times we've cried and wanted to cry. They will be no more. There's to be no death, no separation from those we love, none at all. There's to be no pain. Nothing can happen which will hurt us. All those things will have passed away. It is glorious. And then, in the midst of this vision, an extraordinary thing happens. Verse 5. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
God the Father speaks. The one who at the beginning of the Bible spoke and the universe came into being. Now Genesis 1 continually says, as God speaks, as God said. Now God speaks again. I am making everything new. God continues in verse 6. He said to me, it is done. More literally, actually, they are done. All things which were required to be accomplished through this universe have been completed to bring in a new heavens and a new earth. And in fact, the Bible's perspective is that the new heavens and the new earth were actually where creation has been heading since day one. You see, when God said in Genesis 1 that everything in creation was very good, I'm certain that what God meant was that everything was fitted to God's purpose, that he had set up this universe so it would lead through to the day where there would be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. C.S. Lewis has brilliantly written on this. And he he said, he thinks on that day we will realise that everything that has ever taken place has been kind of the musical prelude, to use that phrase. And when that day comes, the concert itself will finally begin. The concert will begin. When the new heavens and the new earth arrives, then the show will really begin. Verse 6 again, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. These are the words of the living and loving God to every person on this planet. That's why this vision was given to John. And the living and loving God offers every person on this planet two things. Living water, which means life forever, and to be his child. Living water and to be his child. That's the most extraordinary and undeserved offer. and It comes to everyone on the planet. Verse 8. But the cowardly, says God, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The living and loving God also makes it clear that the one thing he is not taking into his new creation is evil. There is no sea, and so no evil can get in there, and so no person who's not being cleansed by Jesus can be in this new creation. Which leaves us with two very important questions. New Year's Eve, it's not a bad time to ask questions. New Year, starting probably at midnight. Possibly... Actually, these two questions are possibly the most important questions that there are. The first is, if God has offered me living water to share in the new heaven and the new earth, if he's offered me a place where there is no more crying or death or pain, if he's offered it to me without payment, if God has offered it to me to be his child... If God 
has offered me all that. Have I accepted that? Friends, can I say, have you accepted it? You know, even as, as a minister, I think it's worth pausing. New Year's Eve, good time to pause and reflecting. Have I actually accepted that? During the course of this year, through the work of our engaged ministries, we know of five people in our church who, who did make that commitment. They committed themselves to Jesus and asked him to use his death to forgive their sins. As a result, the Bible says that their names are in the Lamb's book of life. So the question for me, for us, is my name in that book? Have I made that commitment? God has spoken, offering it to us. Have we accepted? New Year's resolutions used to be a big thing. Nowadays it seems that the main New Year's resolution I hear about people having is not to have one. But actually, a new year is a time for a new start. And starting with Jesus, accepting his offer today, would be the absolute best preparation for 2024 that was possible. Have I done that? Have you done that? Question worth asking. The second question is, how am I going stopping the evil practices in my own life which won't happen in heaven? As the Bible itself points out elsewhere, Jesus himself points out, it's easy to see the evil practices in another person, but we kind of quite like our own. Verse 8 again, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic art, the idolaters and all liars. The problem with that list is it's not a list about other people. It's a list about me. And where I practice those things, this passage wants me, first of all, to know that I'm completely wasting my time. Because the day is coming in the new heavens and the new earth when none of those things you will be able to practice anymore. So you might as well stop now and stop practicing them because you won't be able to do them in heaven. But more than that, if we've trusted Jesus, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit longs to help us stop practicing those things. Because more than that, all those things are actually destroying our lives now, so we should stop now. How are we going with that? Hard with some sins. Again, New Year. Great opportunity to reflect on my life. What are the things in my life that I won't be able to do in heaven? And if I won't be able to do them in heaven because they're not good, well, this New Year's Eve would be a great time to come before God, confess them, and pray that his spirit, I'm weak, but God's spirit working in me would enable me to change in those areas. And probably getting other Christians to help us is good practice as well. Now, God gave John this vision and indeed, in this part of the vision, John heard God speak. But it is a symbolic vision, and we need to be careful there. These are symbols about the future, uh, and it does give us an overall picture of God's plan and purposes. 
But actually, because it is a vision and it is symbolic, how these things will actually work out in practice, I don't think it's telling us. It's telling us, if you like, the big picture of what's going to happen, but it's not going to tell us how those things will happen. And I suspect that even if, even if kind of we got an extra chapter of the Bible added on, which Revelation 22 says you won't get, but, but even if you got an extra chapter of the Bible added on, which explained to us how these things were going to happen, I don't think I'd be able to understand it in any case because it's all beyond me. It wouldn't actually make sense. So th- this is a vision, but it's giving us the big picture of what God's intentions are. And he is God and he will pull it off. I've always been helped by a particular poem. There's a great a uh, Puritan leader by the name of Richard Baxter wrote an Im- immense amount of very helpful stuff for his age about um, 400 years ago. And he wrote this about what we're talking about. My knowledge of that life is small. Let me tell you, Richard Baxter wrote more about Christianity than any other person has ever written in the English language. And he still says, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. His faith was amazing. That's what he says. But it's enough on this that Christ knows all. And what's he saying? And I shall be with him. See, the culmination of all things is is actually to be with Christ. See, from the beginning of the Bible... We've seen that everything has been pointing to Christ, to God's Son, right through the Old Testament, and then the coming to earth of Christ at the first Christmas. But on the final day, when a new heaven and a new earth comes, when that day comes, the great glory actually will be that we will be with Christ. For with Christ will come everything more wonderful than we can ever imagine. You might say, Well, Arthur, when will this happen? When will God usher all this in? It's 2,000 years since Jesus now. When's this coming? Well, the answer is any time, but we don't know. What we do know is a bit like this. We know for certain at midnight a new year will start. And I want to say, as absolutely certainly as at midnight, a new year will start. So the day will come when it's not just a new year that starts, but a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Let me pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in sharing with us these truths. We're con- Conscious that they are vision, that they are symbolic, but that they tell us of your plans. And we thank you for your love for us in telling us these plans. We praise you for that and thank you. And we pray that you would keep these plans before our eyes of a new heavens and a new earth. And that we might structure our lives in the light of your plans. Or we know that that will be the best in the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.